I remember when we were in seminary, when Sarah and I were living up in uh, New Jersey in married student housing, there was a, a woman who, a single mom who was in seminary with us and she lived next door to us and she had two teens. And um, the young man, about 16 years old, was a dark soul, he, uh, deeply melancholic, lots of anger, depression, resentment. Um, and because I was just like that as a 16 year old, uh, I sort of, my heart went out to him and we spent a lot of time together, tried to mentor him a bit. And I'll never forget one particular occasion. Um, he was in a particularly depressive episode and I was just trying to speak some hope into his life and said something about you know, the, the hope that we have as Christians and Jesus. And he immediately just stopped me, interrupted me. And he said, yeah, yeah. Jesus died on the cross, why go, go to heaven? Whatever. And I was just so saddened by that. Because at this moment, I realized that here was a kid who was raised in the church and whose mom was in seminary and yet who had no clue, no clue what Christianity is actually about. This kid had succumbed to what I'm going to call just in the next few minutes, transactional Christianity. Transactional Christianity. Uh, Transactional Christianity uh, really just cares about getting the eternal transaction done. You know, getting a person to say the right words, pray the right prayer, get the right beliefs and doctrine into their head, and just kind of secure eternal salvation after they die. It's what John Ortberg calls the idea that being a Christian is just believing the minimal entrance requirements to get into heaven. This is what my neighbor had fallen to and believed. It's what was taught to so many of us. Uh, Langston Hughes, the famous American poet, wrote in one of his essays about an experience he had when he was a young man in his aunt's church and when there was a revival one Sunday. And the preacher was preaching, and it came the time for people to come up and get saved. And all the young people, all the youth came up and got saved, except for Langston and his friend Wesley. They just stayed there, sitting there in the pew. And the preacher was clearly annoyed by this, wanting these two young men to come forward. So he kept on preaching. He kept on preaching. The deacons uh, surrounded these two young men, and they began praying loudly for them. And it just got later and later and hotter and hotter, and the music was going on. And finally, Wesley just leaned over to Langston and whispered to him, man, I'm tired of this. Let's just go on up and get saved. And so reluctantly, the, the two boys just slunk their way up to the front and got saved. But Langston, in this essay, writes about how hollow it felt. He knew that something was wrong. He knew that it was just an empty transaction that had occurred and that nothing was really different. You know, transformational Christianity is not just wrong, it is harmful, If your faith is nothing but a nice little transaction with God and there is no real impact on the rest of your life, then I'm going to tell you, friends, you are a prime candidate for religious disillusionment and hypocrisy and spiritual hollowness. It's the way that leads to death. Not only does transactional Christianity harm the one who believes it, but it harms our world because it creates communities of Christians who have no idea how to integrate their faith with their behavior. Let me tell you about one of the most disturbing experiences of my life. I was in West Africa in the country of Ghana, and uh, our group visited a slave castle. And this was a place where 
um, thousands of men, African men and women and children were captured in their own villages and imprisoned in a castle like this before they were shoved into the underbelly of a slave ship and shipped to the new American world. But what was so disturbing to me about it was that right there prominently in the first floor of this slave castle was a beautiful reformed Christian chapel. Looked very similar to this space here where good religious men sat and worshiped God and sang hymns and heard the gospel and confessed their faith and took the sacrament right on the top of the black bodies of the men that they had enslaved. That's what transactional Christianity does. That's what happens when we focus so exclusively on the destiny of the soul and right Christian doctrine and the correct forms of worship that we never begin to ask the questions about how Jesus and his reign should actually begin to change and challenge our everyday lives, our attitudes, our lifestyles, our behaviors, the way that we live. It creates lives. It creates communities of Christians who can worship in a chapel on Sunday while rottenness pervades the rest of their weeks. And I know that sounds extreme, that sounds like an extreme case, it is, but really, honestly, y'all, it just wasn't so long ago that white Christians in our own city worshiping all over our city on Sunday morning were the same ones who were writing and passing unjust laws in our city to systemically discriminate against African Americans, shut them out of fair housing, segregate our schools, drain them of hope. It was good Christians who did such things. It was just a decade ago that the two top executives of a multinational company called Enron, who were incredibly good and church-going men, not just members of their churches, but leaders in their churches that their pastors honored and believed were good men. It was these men who overestimated their company's value, lied to their stockholders and their employees about the company's stability, and then arranged an executive bailout for themselves in which they made hundreds of millions of dollars on the backs of the people that they financially destroyed. It was Christian men who did those things. It wasn't so long ago, actually six weeks ago, that there was a young man named John Ernest who was an active member of an evangelical Presbyterian church in California, just like our church, His dad was an elder. John had the Westminster Catechism memorized. He could perfectly recite some beautifully reformed doctrine just like we teach in our our new members classes here. It was, and that young man, John, took a gun and walked into a synagogue and began shooting. And I could go on, and I know these are extreme examples, but I, I wanna be extreme for a moment because this is the power, the destructive power of transactional Christianity because it allows people to believe that all that's really important is getting eternal life squared away, not to form us in the way that we're living right now. Transactional Christianity separates beliefs from behavior. Transactional Christianity is interested in orthodoxy, what we believe, but ignores orthopraxy, right living. Transactional Christianity is interested in private and personal spirituality, not in public everyday life. Transactional Christianity secures your eternal salvation while doing nothing about the pride and hate and greed in your own soul. Transactional Christianity creates disintegrated, fractured people who have no idea how their faith connects with their everyday life. And it is deeply harmful, not just to Christians, but to our world. It creates a hypocritical, seemingly irrelevant faith that has nothing to say about the profound challenges and problems 
facing our world. Y'all, people are crying out for wisdom and guidance in this crazy, upside down, screwed up world that we live in. And if our faith has nothing to say about suffering and injustice and wealth and poverty and race and class and conflict and war and economics and power, frankly, who cares? Who cares? And to paraphrase Dorothy Sayers, how can anyone be interested in a religion which seems to have no concern with nine-tenths of everyday life? We grieve the fact that so many millennials raised in the church are abandoning the faith in droves. And I'm convinced that one reason is because we have given them a transactional Christianity, a faith that has a whole lot to say about life after death, but has very little to say about life before death. We've given them a faith that doesn't matter. And so this is why the book of James is so important in our day. Because James is all about a faith that really matters that takes root in our everyday life. And that's why we're reading this book because James is showing and giving us not a transactional Christianity, but a transformational Christianity. You can see it from the very first verse. Look with me at the first verse. James says here, a servant of God and of the Lord Jesus Christ. The word there he uses for Lord is the word kurios, the Greek word kurios, which means Lord, but the the only other person in the ancient world that they knew of that was used that term at this time was Caesar. He was Lord. He was Kurios, who ruled over the Roman Empire and demanded that every person publicly give their allegiance to him. So when James opens this book by saying Jesus is Lord, he's not just making this private little religious statement. He is making a dramatic public challenge to the emperor, saying it is not the emperor, it is King Jesus who demands the whole of our allegiance in our lives. See, transformational Christianity is grounded in the truth that Jesus is Lord, not just of our eternal destiny, but of every single corner of our lives. Have y'all ever noticed how demanding Jesus can be? I mean, it makes me uncomfortable. Jesus says things like, if anyone wants to come after me, they must take up their cross and deny themselves and lose their lives and follow me. No, I mean, can you imagine Jesus saying, you must take up your cross, deny yourself and follow me, but just to be clear, you don't actually have to worry about doing anything I say as long as you pray this sinner's prayer. Can you imagine Jesus saying that? No way, because that's transactional Christianity and Jesus is not an insurance agent. He is not a spiritual sidekick or a salvation manager. He is the ultimate Lord and he will not come into your life unless he gets from you full comprehensive allegiance. You can't give him the margins of your life. You can't just think about him a little bit on Sundays and maybe read your Bible and pray when you're in a bind. To love him and know him means that he comes in as absolute unconditional authority. He gives you a new way to live about every area of your life, your money, your career, your speech, your decisions, your choices, the way you treat your enemies, the way that you treat people of different socioeconomic classes, the way that you handle conflict. He wants to save us, not just from hell, but from anger, lust, greed, arrogance, egotism. He wants to change it. He wants to, he wants to give you a new kind of life. He wants to take fractured people and make us whole. That's what he wants to do. And so that's what the book of James is about. He's saying that either your faith in Jesus affects every single part of your life 
where it's not real faith. James is pretty extreme. It's not real faith. Real faith isn't transactional, it's transformational. Real faith isn't revealed in just what you can say in church, it's revealed in how you live. It's the level of change that Jesus is bringing about in your everyday life. I love the story of uh, one of my heroes, South African pastor, Alan Busak. In the 70s, he was living in apartheid, which was the South African system of governmental racial segregation. And Alan, just a normal pastor that he was, every Sunday got up in the pulpit and preached against it as a condemnation and contradiction of the gospel. And they eventually arrested Alan and brought him to court and put him on trial. And they said to him, they said to Alan, this pastor in court, they said, sir, you are a pastor. You are supposed to be about spiritual things. Why do you insist on speaking out against the government and speaking out on these issues of race and economics? That's not your area, friend. You attend to spiritual things. And this is what Alan said. He said, I must speak out because I am a Christian and Christians believe there is no separation of the spiritual from the political or the private from the public. We believe there is not one square inch in the whole world over which Jesus is not Lord. And therefore, I must speak. If Jesus is Lord, friends, it means everything has changed. It means it radically changes how we live in the world. And this summer, James is going to challenge us in some deep ways about the everyday parts of our lives. You know, when I, the, old, the last church that I was the pastor of, Easton Fellowship, it was a bit more of a, a charismatic Pentecostal congregation, and so preaching was a little different. It was more like a dialogue. People would just talk back to me all the time, uh, which I like, actually. Y'all can do that, although I'm not sure what y'all say, but, you know, just say whatever you want. But sometimes people would say amen, or they say hallelujah, or they say go on, preacher. But there was this one lady who every once in a while, when I would just really get going and I'd be saying something that might convict her deep, she just would cry out, get out of my business, preacher. Get out of my business. <laughs> And that's, my friends, what Jesus and James want to do. They want to get all up in your business. And that's what they're going to do this summer. Every little business that you have, they're going to get up in it. Up in it, friends. And are you ready for that? Your speech, your emotions, your anger, your relationships, your suffering, how you treat people who are different than you. He's going to get all up in it. Are you ready for that? Because he's Lord. He's Lord. Just to be clear, one last thing. James is not just out to challenge and change people. He's out to challenge and change communities. Notice how James speaks to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations. He sees this metaphor of the Old Testament people of God in exile as a metaphor for the church that the people of God are now living like strangers in a foreign land all over the ancient empire seeking to follow Jesus when the world around them seems to be moving the other way. And so he has a vision for the church that you must be those now who are living in the world but not of it, scattered among the nations but not to live like the nations. You're called to be a counter-cultural community as a church that is living differently than the world around you. He wants the church not just to be a social club or a service event or a collection tank for saved people as we wait for heaven. He has a vision that the church would be a counter-cultural force of transformation in the world living differently, handling money differently, treating power differently, bringing down barriers that separate people in the world, being a model to the world, the difference that Jesus makes. That's his vision for the church, that we would be those who are different because of the lordship of Jesus. 
Yo, we are a great church. I love you guys. I really do. But James is a very important reminder for us to keep our eye on the ball and to remind us to measure the right things. So when we talk about our church, third church, do we focus on how many people we got coming to the services or how great the music is or the preaching or how personally I was fulfilled on a Sunday? Because James would look at that and he would say, no, friends, your faith is not revealed in what you do in here, but revealed in how you live together out there. The degree, your faith, the measure of the church is the degree to which we love each other, our generosity, the degree to which we are giving ourselves to the orphan and the widow and the forgotten of the world, the degree to which we are modeling a different kind of community. That's what shows the faith of a church, James says. Not what we say in here, but what we do out there. So are we becoming that, that kind of community? That's what James wants to do in us. So I just want you to contemplate this week as, you, as, you begin, as we begin this study together. I want you to contemplate what kind of faith is your faith? Is it a transactional Christianity or a transformative Christianity? Is it a Sunday Christianity or a Monday to Saturday Christianity? Is it a Christianity in which Jesus is your personal savior or Jesus is your comprehensive Lord? Is it a faith in which the church is just a Sunday service or church is a countercultural movement that you are now a part of in the world? Is your faith irrelevant? Or does your faith actually matter? In closing, I just want you to think for a moment about this person, James. You know, every once in a while, like a famous person will die and everybody thought that person was so great, but then sort of an expose comes out where some family member, usually a family member, exposes. Let me tell you what this person was really like. Because it's the family that sees truly. It's the family that sees the innermost places. It's the family that sees the pride and the laziness and the fear. You know, you don't want your family members writing something about you. (laughs) Especially if they don't like you. So here's James, right? Little brother of Jesus. Can you imagine, kids? Can you imagine having Jesus being your big brother? I mean, that'd be like the worst, right? He's doing everything good all the time. So James, little brother of Jesus, I mean, literally raised together in the same house, shared a bunk bed, shared a bathroom. We know from the Gospels that James and the other brothers and sisters didn't actually follow Jesus during his three years of public ministry. And who can blame them anyway? I mean, who wants to say that your big brother is God, right? I mean, nobody wants to say that. <laughs> You you want to say that? I don't think so, right? But what we know is that later, after Jesus rose from the dead, he actually appeared to James personally, 1 Corinthians 15, 7. And that meeting changed James forever. So now here is James writing this letter, a leader of the church, and the very first line saying, my big brother, my big brother is kurios, master, Caesar, Lord, I've seen him. I've seen him close up. I've seen his beauty. I've seen his moral grandeur. I've seen his glory. I've seen his total life consistency. I've seen him on the inside and the out. I've seen the way he loves. I've seen the way he died. I saw him risen from the dead. My big brother, he's the Lord. And it changed James so much that just a little bit of time after writing this letter, they arrested him, 
And we know from tradition that they took him on top of the temple in Jerusalem and they demanded that he renounce his big brother as Lord. And he said no. And they threw him three stories off the top of that temple. And he hit the ground and he didn't die. And so they clubbed him to death. And as he lay dying, he proclaimed, my big brother is Lord. That's what this book is about. Not like demanding some religious obedience from you. It's about seeing that Jesus is the loving Lord. And when you see him, you want him to get up in your business. You want to give your life to him. He's worth living for. He's worth dying for. He's worth losing everything for. Because when you see him, you realize that your faith is not just this irrelevant thing. It's a faith that truly changes. It's a faith that actually matters. Don't you want that? Don't you want a faith that really matters? Let's pray. We thank you, Lord Jesus, that you are the risen and reigning Lord, and we want to be those who give our whole selves to you. Help us to do that this summer as we study this beautiful book. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.